Lesson 2 for October 4-10, to 10, The Perfecting of Our Faith. Sabbath afternoon, October 4. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we open your word again today. We come to look again at the book of James and see what you have there for us. We're going to talk about a dentist today. We're going to look at some of the words that the book of Philippians and John and Timothy have to say in preparation for the study of James. And as we do so, we pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us and bless us in his dear name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's read that again, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. A dentist explained why his crowns are always flawless. Unlike some dentists, he said, I never have a problem with the crowns that come back from the lab. If I send them perfect work, they send me perfect crowns. This dentist doesn't worry about the end result. He focuses on his role in the initial stage of the process. Likewise, as Christians, we need not get all worked up over whether or not our characters will be good enough in the end. That is God's work. Our role is, as it says in 1 Timothy 6 verse 12, to fight the good fight of faith by keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Such faith in Christ enables him to work in us, as it says in Philippians 2.13, both to will and to do his good pleasure, and to finish the good work he has begun. Without faith, it is possible to feel defeated, even before we begin, because we focus on ourselves rather than on him. As Jesus says in John 6.29, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. James, as we will see, helps us to understand this important truth. Sunday, October 5, Faith Lasts. Question. Read James chapter 1, verses 2 to 3, and 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7, and 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13. What is the common attitude of both James and Peter in regard to trials? How are we supposed to relate to this incredible biblical injunction? Well, first of all, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, 
may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And First Peter chapter four verses twelve and thirteen. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. No one likes suffering. We almost always avoid it if we can. The Greek word used in verse 3 for the testing of our faith is dokimion. It refers to the process of proving the genuineness of something. Peter likens this testing or trying of our faith to the way fire purifies gold. Although such testing may not be pleasant, God expects a successful outcome. Trials should not discourage us, for if we remain faithful, we will, as it says in Job 23 verse 10, come forth as gold. And in Proverbs 17:3, the refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the hearts. Thus we are to rejoice when trials come, especially over our faith. For Jesus said in Matthew 5.12, Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Also, trials deepen our appreciation for what Christ endured for us. As 1 Peter 4.13 points out, they enable us to share in Christ's sufferings. In short, we need to look through and beyond each trial and visualize the result God intends. That is where faith comes in. We need to believe in a loving Father, rely on His wisdom, and act on the basis of His Word. We can safely entrust our future to Him. Romans 8.28 And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called, according to His purpose. In fact, only through faith, through knowing for ourselves God's love, and living by faith in light of that love, could we ever possibly rejoice in our trials. In James 1.3, the ultimate goal of the testing of our faith is patience. The Greek word hypomone can also be translated endurance, as in the New American Standard Bible, or perseverance, as in the New International Version. Hypomone refers to that which outlasts everything else because it rests confidently in the assurance of God's final deliverance, as in Luke chapter 21 and verse 19. By your patience, possess your souls. So to finish today, it's one thing to stay faithful to God during trials, that is, to not lose your faith, but to cling to the Lord, even in the worst times. But we are told to rejoice in our trials. Isn't that asking too much? After all, at times it can be hard enough just to stay faithful in trials, but to rejoice in them? Yep, that's what we are told. How then can we learn to rejoice when rejoicing is the last thing we feel like doing?
Monday, October 6, Perfection Read James chapter 1, verses 2 and 4. My brethren, count it all joys when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Notice the progression. Faith, testing, patience, perfection. James begins with faith because that is the foundation of all true Christian experience. He then says we need trials to test the genuineness of our faith. Lastly, James states that trials can teach us perseverance, so that eventually we will not be caught by surprise and be overcome by them. God's goal for us is that we may, as it says in James 1.4, be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. The language could not be loftier. The word perfect, teleos, means spiritual maturity, while complete, holocleros, refers to wholeness in every way. Truly, we can become so much more in the Lord if we would die to self and allow Him to work in us, as it says in Philippians 2.13, to will and to do of His good pleasure. Question. Read Ephesians chapter 4 verse 13 and Philippians chapter 3 verses 12 to 15. What attitude toward perfection are Christians encouraged to have? Ephesians 4.13 Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And Philippians 2 verses 12 to 15 Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Like Paul, followers of Christ will never be satisfied with anything short of patterning their lives after the unselfish, sacrificial love of their Master. But we will never feel as though we have already attained or were already perfected, as it says in the New King James Version. Notice, too, in the passages, the emphasis on the future. Paul is pointing toward what he has been promised in God through faith in Jesus. There's never a time in the Christian walk where we can say, I have arrived, at least as far as character goes. Have you ever noticed, too, that those who say that they have arrived are generally obnoxious and self-righteous? We are like a work of art. We can always be improved upon. And God promises to do just that as long as we press on in faith, seeking to surrender to Him daily in trust and obedience. So to finish today, if you died right now, would you be good enough to be saved? Or if you had died two weeks after you had accepted Jesus, would you have been good enough to be saved?
Do you think in six months you will be good enough? What does your answer tell you about your need for the perfect robe of Christ's righteousness, regardless of whatever level of perfection you attain? Tuesday, October 7, Asking in Faith Question. Read James chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. How is wisdom different from knowledge? What connection does James make between wisdom and faith? Well, let's read James chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. It may seem a bit odd that James says, if any of you lacks wisdom. Who thinks he or she has enough wisdom to begin with? Solomon, for instance, recognizing his need, humbly asked for an understanding heart to discern between good and bad in 1 Kings 3.9. Later he wrote in Proverbs 9.10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Question. We tend to think of wisdom as that which we know. How do the following texts, however, show us what another side of true wisdom is? Let's look in James 1, verses 19 to 21, chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, and chapter 3, verse 13. Chapter 1, verses 19 and 21, to 21. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. And James 2, verses 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? And chapter 3, verse 13, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Both Proverbs and James describe wisdom as something very practical. Not what we know, but how we live. For example, being quick to listen, slow to speak, we read in James one nineteen. Plato said, Wise men talk because they have something to say. Fools, because they would like to say something. In other words, we can have all the knowledge the world offers, but lack true wisdom. Of course, God is the source of all true wisdom. We gain wisdom most by listening to Him, reading His Word, and spending thoughtful time contemplating the life of Christ, who became, for us, wisdom from God, as it says in 1 Corinthians 1.30. By learning to reflect the character of Christ in our own lives, 
we live out the truth as it is in Jesus. That is true wisdom. So to finish today, read James 1 verse 6 again. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. We must ask in faith, not doubting. Isn't that sometimes hard? Who doesn't at times struggle with doubt? When that happens, what's crucial is to pray and to start dwelling on all the reasons we have for faith. The story of Jesus, the prophecies of the Bible, and our own personal experiences. How could doing this help us work through whatever doubt might occasionally arise? Wednesday, October 8. The flip side of faith. Question. Read James chapter 1 verses 6 to 8. What is he saying to us here? But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The word for doubt refers to one being inwardly divided. This helps us to understand its connection to double-mindedness. We see a clear example of this at Kadesh Barnea. Israel faced a choice there. Move forward in faith or rebel against the Lord. Amazingly, they chose rebellion and wanted to return to the bondage of Egypt. When God intervened and announced through Moses that they would die in the wilderness, suddenly the people believed. They said, We will go up to the place which the Lord has promised, for we have sinned in Numbers 14, verse 40. In Patriarchs and Prophets, page 391, we read, Now they seemed sincerely to repent of their sinful conduct. But they sorrowed because of the result of their evil course, rather than from a sense of their ingratitude and disobedience. When they found that the Lord did not relent in his decree, their self-will again arose, and they declared that they would not return into the wilderness. In commanding them to retire from the land of their enemies, God tested their apparent submission and proved that it was not real. Question. Read Luke chapter 17 verses 5 and 6. What is Jesus telling us here about faith? And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. So the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. When the disciples asked for some faith, Jesus said mustard seed-sized faith was plenty. What counts is whether our faith is alive and growing. And this can and will happen only as we continue to exercise that faith by reaching out and trusting in God in all situations. But doubt sometimes gets in the way. 
Our world bombards us with doubt and scepticism. No one is immune. All we can do is pray our way through it, remembering God's faithfulness in the past and trusting Him for our future. So to finish today, what are all the reasons you have for trusting in God and His promises and living by faith? Think through them, dwell on them, and your faith will only increase. Thursday, October 9. The Rich and the Poor. In this short letter, James shows great concern for poor people. Some even consider it his major theme, but to modern ears, his diatribes against the rich and in favour of the poor seem extreme, even shocking. At the same time, however, James isn't saying anything much different from what Jesus has said. Question. Compare James 1, 9 to 11 with Luke 8, 14 and James 1, 27 with Matthew 25, 37 to 40 and James 2, 15 and 16 with Luke 10, 29 to 37 and James 5, 1 to 4 with Luke 12, verses 16 to 21. What's the common message there to us? What warnings and admonitions can we all take away from what's so clearly expressed here? Well, first of all, James 1, verses 9 to 11. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass." Its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. And we compare that with Luke 8.14. Now the ones that fell among thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life, and find no fruit to maturity. And James 1.27. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. And we compare that with Matthew 25, verses 37 to 40. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and came to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And James 2, verses 15 and 16, If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? And we compare that with Luke 10, verses 29 to 37. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbour? Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, 
leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you need, or whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbour to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy to him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. And James chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the labourers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the weepers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. And we compare that with Luke chapter 12, verses 16 to 21. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself, and is not rich toward God. James, of course, does not shut the doors of the kingdom on all rich people. But, like Jesus, he recognizes the insidious temptations that come with wealth. Rich or poor, we need to keep our eyes on the real prize. The problem with money is that it tends to deceive us into focusing on the temporal instead of the eternal. 2 Corinthians 4.18 reads, While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. No question, the acquisition of wealth, higher education or social influence tends to separate people from the less fortunate. But the early church kept the two classes together by turning worldly values upside down. The one who takes the lowest place, the role of humility, is the one who can glory in exaltation. As Ellen White writes in Welfare Ministry, page 269, As long as there are hungry ones in God's world to be fed, naked ones to be clothed, souls perishing for the bread and water of salvation, every unnecessary indulgence, every overplus of capital, pleads for the poor and the naked. So to finish today, what about yourself? Whether rich or poor, it doesn't matter. What matters is how you relate to money. What is it about money that makes it so potentially dangerous 
to our souls. Friday, October 10. From the Advent Review and Sabbath Herald, April 10, 1894, we read, God would have his servants become acquainted with their own hearts. In order to bring them a true knowledge of their condition, he permits the fire of affliction to assail them, so that they may be purified. The trials of life are God's workmen to remove the impurities, infirmities and roughness from our characters and fit them for the society of pure heavenly angels in glory. Then, as we pass through trial, as the fire of affliction kindles upon us, shall we not keep our eyes fixed upon the things that are unseen, on the eternal inheritance, the immortal life, the far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory? And, while we do this, the fire will not consume us, but only remove the dross, and we shall come forth seven times purified, bearing the impress of the divine. And that brings us to our four discussion questions for this week. 1. What Bible characters do you find most encouraging in times of suffering? Have you learned to find joy in trials? If so, share with the class what has helped you do this. At the same time, if you haven't been able to rejoice in your sufferings, talk about that in class as well, if you feel comfortable doing it. 2. Dwell more on this idea that true wisdom is not so much head knowledge, but what we can do in faith through Christ. At the same time, why does this not mean that head knowledge isn't important? How can having, for instance, wrong doctrine be very detrimental to one's walk with God. 3. A young man had a friend who went through severe trials. Although the young man found the trials painful to watch, he did notice that his friend was growing in grace. When the trials were over, his friend really had changed, and for the better. What things have you learnt from your trials that have been spiritually beneficial to you? Ask yourself, could I have learned them any other way? And four, what can you say to someone who appears sincere in faith and yet admits to being at times overcome with doubt? How can you help? Inside Story Our mission story this week is titled Heidi's Hope, Part 1. When 13-year-old Heidi Moreno and her cousin Morella began questioning their mother's rules, Heidi's mother decided to stop their rebelliousness before it got out of hand. She took Heidi to a spirit medium, a witch. The medium claimed that Heidi had a bad spirit. I see a gold feather over your head, the medium told Heidi. The spirit that possesses you is powerful. The medium performed a ritual to remove Heidi's rebelliousness. Suddenly, Heidi felt as if her body was not hers. She became dizzy, then fainted. Soon after, Heidi and her mother returned home to their farm outside Cali in Colombia in South America. Heidi began acting strangely. 
She crawled on the floor like a snake and spoke with strange voices. The voices promised great riches, but threatened the family members if they tried to stop Heidi's strange behaviour. Sometimes family members felt an invisible hand slap them when they tried to touch Heidi. The invisible hands began destroying the furniture and punching holes in the walls. The spirits came and went unexpectedly, leaving family members shaken and afraid. The family did not want to anger the spirits, for they still hoped to gain the riches that the spirits had promised. Then, one day, the spirits spoke through Heidi's cousin Morella. She described the spirit that entered her as a strong man. No one else could see them, but they often felt their evil presence. The spirits entered the girls' bodies and forced them to gorge themselves with food. Then, after the spirits left, the girls were hungry again. After months of living in fear and confusion, Heidi's family decided to try to escape the spirits by moving to the city of Kailai. But the spirits became angry and beat Heidi and Marilla with whips and sticks until their bodies were bloody and bruised. They gave the girls so much strength that four men could not hold them. The frightened families decided they must get help to free their daughters from these spirits. Heidi's mother took her to one church after another in hope of finding release from the spirits, but the spirits remained as strong as ever. Then a neighbour told her about the Seventh-day Adventist church. The spirits had warned Heidi that something terrible would happen if she went to this church. So Heidi resisted her family's attempts to take her there. It took several strong men to overpower the devil in Heidi and get her inside the church. Once inside, Heidi suddenly felt at peace. God has set me free, she thought. That day, Heidi worshipped God with all her heart. Heidi knew now that only God could free Marilla from the devil's power. She urged Marilla to go to the church and seek God. The spirits in Marilla threatened her, but she agreed to go, hoping for deliverance from the spirits' torment. And this story is to be continued next week. I wonder what the result will be. Your reader this week has been Dr. Percy Harold. The lessons have been brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Remember that God is always faithful.